Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Ramesses XI's first few years continued largely in the mold of his dynastic predecessors, which wasn't, you know, necessarily a good thing. The Egyptian economy was on life support, with grain prices at an all-time high, tomb robbing now endemic, and cash-strapped pharaohs forced to repurpose existing statues and monuments. While Ramesses ruled from Pi Ramesses in the eastern delta, rival power centers existed in both the hereditary priesthood of Amun at Thebes and in a viceroy of Cush to the south. And around a dozen years into Ramesses' reign, the situation escalated into open conflict. The cycle kicked off around 1100 B.C., when Pinehesi, the viceroy of Cush, marched his forces north to Thebes and ejected the current high priest, a man named Amenhotep. There's no explanation of why it happened, whether it was simple ambition, a personal conflict, or something a bit more lofty. There's mention of his confiscating temple lands to settle military veterans. Either way, Pinehesi apparently ruled Thebes for some time. But eventually Amenhotep returned to the region and, after a period of conflict, drove Pinehesi back to his Nubian power base at Kerma. Now, it's not clear whether Ramesses XI had backed Amenhotep's return to power, but at some point he transferred the viceroyalty of Cush from Pinehesi to Amenhotep's successor as high priest, a man named Pionk. After the incident, Pinehesi apparently remained in Nubia as an enemy of the Egyptian state. Once things had kind of settled back down, Ramesses decided to celebrate that fact with the declaration of a new Egyptian era, the Wehemesut, repetition of births, or more commonly, the Egyptian Renaissance. Which all sounds pretty majestic and significant, right? But a few things. First, 
Despite numerous mentions of the era in Egyptian records, we have no idea what the Renaissance was, besides some vague attempt at dynastic rebranding. I'm sure when Dominic at The History of Egypt gets to covering the era, we'll learn a lot more about all the relevant details. But it's also pretty clear that, in any measurable, practical, political sense, the change made exactly zero difference. Around a decade into this bright new era, the now high priest of Amun and viceroy of Kush, Payank of Thebes, marched south into Nubia for a meeting with Pinehesi, the man who'd briefly ousted his predecessor, Amenhotep. Payank may have been fishing for an alliance with the goal of overthrowing Ramesses XI, but if so, he was thoroughly outmaneuvered. We know this because, shortly after the meeting, Payank disappears from Egyptian records, while Ramesses XI reinstated Pinehesi as viceroy of Kush. So it's kind of like Dune, with Payank getting lured from his place of power, Thebes, to somewhere he could be more easily destroyed. All of which is to say that Egyptian politics were getting pretty complex and deadly. For the new high priest of Amun at Thebes, Ramesses installed a career army officer of Libyan extraction named Herihor, whom he may have also married to his daughter, Najmet. It was a pretty clear attempt to re-establish more direct control over Upper Egypt, and it actually kind of worked. When Pinehesi died of old age, Ramesses elevated Herihor to viceroy of Kush and pretty soon he also named him Vizier of Upper Egypt, both of which reflected a great deal of trust. But around 1077 BC, when Ramesses died with no designated heir, Herihor took the opportunity to elevate himself to Pharaoh. Only not so fast. The thing was, Ramesses had died in Lower Egypt, in the territory of a high official named Nesban Nebjed. And by Egyptian tradition, whoever was responsible for burying the pharaoh was expected to succeed him to the throne. So once Nesban Nebjed took on the task, he used it to make his own bid for the kingship. Just to unpack it a bit, his name translates to He of the Ram, Lord of Jedet, with Jedet, or Mendes, being an important city in the eastern Nile Delta. The He of the Ram part makes more sense once he learned that the city's divine triad was the Ram deity Baneb Jedet, his consort the fish goddess Hatmehit, and their offspring Horus the Child. It was also the city of Mendes that gave Nisban Nebjet his more common name, the pharaoh Smendes I. So, now that I've teed up both Herihor and Smendes, whom I should also mention may very likely have been brothers-in-law, we can get to the story you've all been waiting for, the report of Winamun. As I mentioned last episode, the tale was originally thought to be a genuine report by a contemporary Egyptian official, but the current consensus is that it's actually literary fiction. But, and this is important, 
it was likely written during the era it portrays, it touches on actual peoples and figures, and its overarching theme of Egypt's diminished status in Syria is considered to be spot on. And I should also mention that I'll be relying on Miriam Licktime's translation for the text. So, with that preamble out of the way, let's dig in. Our main character is Wena Moon, who introduces himself as Elder of the Portal of the Temple of Amun. He also gives us the scoop on his mission, to fetch timber for the great noble bark of Amun-Ra, King of Gods, which means he may have been dispatched by Herahor, the high priest of Amun at Thebes and current co-pharaoh. When Amun reports that he first made his way to the delta city of Tanis, the place where Smendes and Tanta Moon are, and passed along his request. Smendes was apparently satisfied with the current power-sharing arrangement and more than happy to support his co-pharaoh. So, after spending four months in Tanis preparing the expedition, Wenamun was sent off with ship's captain Mengebet and went down upon the great sea of Phoenicia in the first month of summer. After sailing past the cities of the Philistine Pentapolis, Wenamun arrives at the port city of Dor. He reminds us that Dor was a Chequer town the place where Ramesses III had settled the defeated sea peoples known as the Cheker. Unlike the Philistines or Peleset, who likely hailed from Mycenaean Greece, the Cheker are a bit harder to nail down. The term Cheker has been linked to Shekelesh, and thereby tied to Sicily, as well as possibly to Zakros in eastern Crete. Whatever their origins, they transformed their newfound home of Dor into a large, well-fortified city. Wenamun records a reasonably warm welcome. Beder, its prince, had fifty loaves, one jug of wine, and one ox haunch brought to me. I mean, the one jug of wine thing sounds a bit stingy, but who am I to judge? But Wenamun also reports that Later that day, one of his own sailors stole several cups, jars, and pieces of silver and fled from ship to shore. Upon waking the next morning, when a moon went ballistic, marched into the palace of Prince Beder of Dor, and demanded some Cheker-style justice. Quote, I have been robbed in your harbor. Now you are the prince of this land, you are the one who controls it. Search for my money. Now, this is some pretty high-handed stuff, especially by a foreign visitor who was robbed by one of his own sailors. And you can almost hear the implied undertone. Do you know why you guys even have this city? If not, let me remind you. It's because... After wiping the floor with you a century back, Ramesses III was feeling magnanimous, and rather than killing you all on the banks of the Nile, he graciously allowed you to settle here. Now, flip things around and put yourself in Beder's shoes. A century ago was a century ago, and the Czech heir hadn't really heard boo from Egypt for the vast majority of that time during which they'd built the city into a thriving, prosperous, independent port. 
And honestly, to me, Bader's reply to When a Moon is 100% on point. Quote, Are you serious? Are you joking? Indeed, I do not understand the demand you make of me. If it had been a thief belonging to my land who had gone down to your ship and stolen your money, I would replace it for you from my storehouse until your thief, whatever his name, had been found. But the thief who robbed you, he is yours. He belongs to your ship. At the end, the prince does offer one concession. Spend a few days with me here. I will search for him. But when a moon is all bent out of shape and refuses the prince's offer. Instead, he sails off north, past the Canaanite cities of Tyre, Sidon, and Beritus. As he's approaching the major city of Byblos, he comes across a Czech-air ship that just happens to be sailing by. Still pretty spun up about the whole incident at Dor, Wenamun actually goes so far as to seize the ship, board it, and force its captain to hand over 30 deben of silver. Which is pretty much straight-up piracy. He then tells the Czech heir he'll gladly repay them once Prince Bedair recovers his money. After which he frees the ship and continues on to Byblos. On reaching the city, Wenamun disembarks while the ship apparently sails on without him. He reports that, I celebrated in a tent on the shore of the sea in the harbor of Byblos. Not sure exactly what he was celebrating, his recent piracy, or all the new friends he was totally not making. Either way, Wenamun's reputation must have preceded him because he's immediately contacted by the king of Byblos, Zakar Baal. The communique is brief and to the point. Leave my harbor. Wenamun seems genuinely surprised. I mean, Byblos used to be an Egyptian colony, so he likely expected a much more cordial, or at least less hostile, welcome. He responds to the king that, at the moment, he's basically stranded. Where shall I go? If you have a ship to carry me, let me be taken back to Egypt. Again, not sure what happened to the ship he came in on, but it's apparently no longer an option. The result is a stalemate, with Wenamun staying in his tent on shore and every morning being sent the exact same message by Zakar Baal. Leave my harbor. Every day, for 29 days. At the end of this period, Wenamun finally finds another ship bound for Egypt, loads all his stuff on board, and prepares to sail for home. Except now, of course, King Zakar Baal actually wants to talk to him. Wenamun describes the ensuing encounter. When morning came, Zakar Baal sent and brought me up. I found him seated in his upper chamber with his back against a window and the waves of the great sea of Phoenicia broke behind his head. I said to him, Blessings of a moon. He said to me, How long is it to this day since you came from the place where Amun is? I said to him, Five whole months till now. 
He said to me, If you are right, where is the dispatch of a moon that was in your hand? Where is the letter of the high priest of a moon that was in your hand? I said to him, I gave them to Smendes and Tentamun. With Tentamun being the queen of Egypt, wife of Smendes, and likely daughter of Ramesses the Eleventh. At this, Zakar Baal apparently became very angry. He said to me, Now then, dispatches, letters, you have none. Where is the ship of Pinewood that Smendes gave you? Where is its Phoenician crew? Did he not entrust you to a foreign ship captain in order to have him kill you and have them throw you into the sea? Which, okay, that's pretty uncalled for and more than a little threatening. When Amun replies that those who sail under Smendes are Egyptian crews, he has no foreign crews. To which the king responds that there are twenty Phoenician ships in his own harbor that do business with Smendes, and another fifty at Sidon. The king then asks him, On what business have you come? When Amun responds, I have come in quest of timber for the great noble bark of Amun-Ra, king of gods. He then seems to find a bit more courage and tells the king, quote, what your father did, what the father of your father did, you too will do it. And again, kind of a bold demand to make of someone who was basically just threatening your life. But Zachar Ball also keeps his cool and responds, True, they did it. If you pay me for doing it, I will do it. My relations carried out this business after Pharaoh had sent six ships laden with the goods of Egypt, and they had been unloaded into our storehouses. You, what have you brought for me? Zakar Baal then had the daybook of his forefathers brought, and rattles off a list of payments sent from Egypt back in the good old days. But he stresses that these were payments of one equal to another not gifts from a ruler to a servant, which kind of implies that was exactly what they were. He continues that it was not a royal gift that they gave to my father. I, too, am not your servant, nor am I the servant of him who sent you. If I shout aloud to the Lebanon, the sky opens and the logs lie here on the shores of the sea. Zakar Baal continues in a similar vein, with the general thrust that Phoenicians are much better sailors and craftsmen than Egyptians, and he ends with the somewhat exasperated question, what are these foolish travels they made you do? Now, we already know that Wenamun has a pretty high opinion of his own status, and the status of Egypt in general. But that opinion goes double when it comes to the nature of his mission. So he responds in a manner that's honestly a bit unrealistic, by directly contradicting the king. Wrong. These are not foolish travels that I am doing. There is no ship on the river that does not belong to a moon. His is the sea and the Lebanon of which you say it is mine. 
Truly, it was Amun-Ra, king of gods, who said to Herihor, my master, send me. In the matter of payment, Wenamun argues that while previous pharaohs had sent gold and silver, Amun offers something even greater. If you will say, I will do, to Amun, and carry out his business, you will live, you will prosper, you will be healthy. You will be beneficent to your whole land and your people. Do not desire what belongs to Amun-Ra, king of gods. Indeed, a lion loves his possessions. Have your scribe brought to me, that I may send him to Smendes and Tentamun, the pillars that Amun has set up for the north of his land, and they will send you all that is needed. Zakarbaal agrees to send a messenger by ship to the king of Lower Egypt, along with a few samples of both rough and crafted wood. And, sure enough, a few months later, a ship returns with gold, silver, and luxury items in prepayment for the precious cedar wood. Wenamun reports that Zekar Baal rejoiced. He assigned 300 men and 300 oxen, and he set supervisors over them to have them fell the timbers. In the third month of summer, they dragged them to the shores of the sea. As Wenamun is preparing to leave, with his mission finally accomplished, Zakar Baal comes down to see him off with a few choice words. Look, the business my fathers did in the past, I have done it. Although you did not do for me what your fathers did for mine. He then channels a bit of Nietzsche with a cryptic warning to do not come to look at the terror of the sea, for if you look at the terror of the sea, you will see my own. Indeed, I have not done to you what was done to the envoys of Ka'em Wesay, after they had spent seventeen years in this land. They died on the spot. And he said to his servant, Take him to see the tomb where they lie. Whoever Ka'em Wesay was, it's hard to miss the point of, hey, at least I treated you better than these other emissaries whom I had killed. You want to see their bodies? But Wenamun counters the king fairly adeptly, suggesting that instead of killing him, he should really set up a stele to commemorate Wenamun's holy mission, which the king had helped him accomplish. They basically agree to disagree, after which Wenamun went off to the shores of the sea to where the logs were lying. But someone has clearly read his checkoff because you can't just introduce the check air in the first act without firing them off in the third. As Wenamun approaches the shore, he sees eleven ships that had come in from the sea and belonged to the check air, who were saying, Arrest him. Let no ship of his leave for the land of Egypt. At which, when Amun finally just breaks down and cries. Because by this point, he's been away from Egypt for over a year, and the Chekir Karma police are bound and determined to make him stay even longer. Zakar Baal feels bad enough for Wenamun that he sends him a servant with two jugs of wine and a sheep as well as an Egyptian songstress named Tentne to help cheer him up. 
The following morning, Zekar Baal invites the rival parties to his throne room. When the Chikir demand the handover of Winamun's ships, the king responds that, I cannot arrest the envoy of a moon in my country. Let me send him off, and you go after him to arrest him. Which is a fairly Solomonic solution, I guess. It's not clear how much of a head start Wenamun gets, but fortunately a storm kicks up, and he's blown off course to the land of Alashaya, or Cyprus. Well, fortunately for evading his Czech air pursuers, but less fortunate in the fact that the locals came out against me to kill me. Wenamun manages to push through them and make his way to the local ruler, Queen Hatiba, who agrees to grant him temporary asylum. Which is unfortunately where the story abruptly breaks off. So, it's pretty clear that the unnamed author is doing his best to capture the contemporary scene. One where Egyptian rule is divided between north and south, Canaanite kings are comfortable threatening Egyptian envoys, and Egyptian officials are claiming authority that they don't have the power to back up. It's a reasonable description of the state of affairs over much of the following century, the first century of what's called the Third Intermediate Period. And though they'd hit the snooze button more than most, Egypt was finally being forced to reckon with the harsh realities of the post-collapse Near East. There's actually a bit of a postscript. A few decades after the events depicted in The Report of When a Moon, the city of Dor was completely violently destroyed. In fact, the report contains the very last mention of the Chekair as a people. The likeliest culprit was the city of Tyre, just a few dozen miles up the road. In the mid-11th century BC, the Phoenician cities were taking advantage of their wealth and power to expand into adjacent regions. But their ambitions were soon checked by two local peoples. The first were the Peleset, or Philistines who dominated five southern cities located between Dor and Egypt. The second were a tribal confederation based in the central highlands, forged from a mix of nomadic groups from Canaan, Edom, and further south, and united through faith in an Edomite god named Yahweh. They were known as the Israelites. <laughs> 